Mel. And Kel. And this is It's Called Culture. Ever heard of it? We have an exciting episode for us all today. We have a guest. It's not our first guest, but it's our first like guest that wasn't our friend before we <laughs> before we brought them on. A real live stranger guest, although not strangers for long. We have Devin Morellis, a Luso descendant from Toronto, Canada. We know lots of people in Toronto. And he's a freelance writer and author of a narrative nonfiction book about their grandfather from the Azores. The book is titled Portuguese Immigrant Atlantic Heritage Story. I just read it like two days ago. It was fantastic. Really enjoyed it. And so I'm sure parts of that are going to come up in conversation today as we're speaking because it's kind of I feel like I know you now through the book. One of the more interesting things was that as we were kind of discussing having you come on as a guest to our podcast, I read the book and I started seeing like, you know, villages, names of villages and names of people specifically that just sounded a little too familiar. And I'm like, I bet we're cousins. I bet we're related in some way, shape or form. And I went into my little ancestry account and I just typed in your name, Devin, like a creeper. And sure enough, <laughs> came up not with you, but with your mom's account that you managed and said we were distant cousins, which I thought was quite fitting. Yeah, it's wild, eh? Small world or shall, shall I say a small island? it's my running joke that anytime somebody says they're from San Miguel I am just immediately like we're probably Premish (laughs) like 100% yeah when writing this book I was doing a lot of genealogy leading up to it and trying to discover my own roots and like connect with what you know who I am what that heritage is and and through that genealogy journey one of the conclusions I came to was exactly that, like something we joke about, but really and truly, like it's a reality. Somewhere down the line, you're either related to somebody or you were Vizingish neighbors from way back when, and you have a connection to everybody at large. There's more people from the Azores off the islands itself, but deep down, like generations, you know, not too far ago, like we were taking like a century or two ago, we were all linked by the same ancestors. And that's pretty crazy thought to think about, right? Oh, it it totally is. The fact that you've deep dived into that and found the links. I saw the the family tree that you had there on Ancestry and it had like 800 members <laughs> attached to it. I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's some serious stuff. <laughs> you know, keeping that linkage to who we are, uh, what our heritage is and not losing sight of like where we came from. I think that's very important. For ourselves and for our future generations, like our kids and our kids' kids, like we need to know where we came from and who these people were. Otherwise, that's lost history. And it's, you know, it's kind of upsetting to think like, you know, your great grandparents, you don't know anything about them. Like, But imagine if you knew their life story, the challenge they took and how that impacted you today, because it's all a ripple effect, right? So at what point did you go from like the kid version of not giving a shit? You know, you grow up and you don't care to ask these questions to your family members, right? And then where yeah. did you make that transition into, oh, I really care about this and I want to do this research? Yeah. As a kid, I, I didn't give a shit. 
I don't know how you guys grew up, but like I grew up in kind of a Portuguese neighborhood, but it was still like integrated with all sorts of different cultures. Like Toronto is one of the most multicultural cities in the world, right? So I have Filipinos, Italians, and Spanish, like everybody, you name it. It was a kaleidoscope of students. But even like within the Portuguese clique, we were more concerned with being like Canadian. We wanted to be North American and, you know, dragging me to like these fashions of like Snur San Christ and the Holy Ghost and Snur the Padre. Like, I didn't want to do that. I was like, mom, like, Same. lame, like Saturday night. Like, I don't want to do that. I want to go out. I want to do something. Like, I want to watch hockey, whatever. Right. So growing up, like I kind of ran away from it. But as much as I tried running away from it, it was still like my environment. Still had the Pumbinga home, the crown, <laughs> mom listening to the radio, the crew, like everything, right? All the symbolism, you're surrounded with it. Mom on the phone screaming at the top of her voice with Vovo and tears like, oh my God, like everything's Portuguese, right? But that shift in my, in my attitude was in my adulthood. And it was probably like my early 20s. And I kind of allude to it in the book. Initially, when my grandmother passed away, they subsequently sold the home. And we like, that's the home like I was raised in after school, we go there after school, be there with my cousins, that's where we had family gatherings, like that was the hub, right? And that was already like the history fading away. What really inspired me to really start doing that was when my grandfather passed away. So I'm there at the funeral home, and we're talking like all these family stories and everything. And I'm, I'm all I'm thinking to myself is what's going to happen to his life? What's going to happen? Like, how are we going to narrate these stories? And who's going to know 10, 20, 30 years from now, what happened here, who we are, right? So that's where I kind of got curious initially is, oh, I want to build my family tree because I know my Vavo and Avu, but who are my great grandparents? And it started with those questions. Inquiring with all the, you know, the, the elders, my parents and aunts and uncles, I got some names and then it just snowballed from there, like with dates, started looking on the internet and just over time, like you start just documenting everything, right? And what I had was like a family book. And you go to like Thanksgiving, you go to Christmas dinner. Like when you ask people, it's hard for them to even remember. You ever ask, get asked a question like, oh, what happened? Like you lose details, right? But it happens organically. You just bring it up, conversation. And that's where I would get a lot of information. They talk stories from back home or like growing up. I would be there with my cell phone or like I'd write notes down. <laughs> like, oh, I gotta remember. <laughs> you know what I mean? And over time, that's how I collected like a lot of interesting tidbits that, you know, contributed to to my book project eventually. That's exactly where I feel like we're at right now because we started this podcast and now it's like I am just sucking in all the information from my parents and like I'm always just constantly asking them questions and writing stuff down. And now I'm so interested in it. And of course, they're like, they love that. You know, they love talking about it, but it's like I've lived for 35 years and I've never asked them any of these questions <laughs> before. <laughs> Do they remember when you ask them? They remember quite a bit, but a lot of it is just like this like hearsay kind of stuff. And you're like, yeah, you know, they tell you stuff and you're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. And you try to like probe a little deeper, figure out, you know, who knows the real story? Because you sound like you're hearing this like fourth or fifth hand already, mom, you know? <laughs> Every time I ask my dad, he's always like, why do you want to know this? Like, why do you need to know this? It's like, I, I want to know. Like, I want to know where you came from, like where Ravu came from. Like, why are you so hung up? Like not telling us 
like he, he's always just like, oh, why are you bothering me with this? You don't, you don't need to know. We came here. I married you, mom. We came here and we had you guys like that's it. It's like, no, there's more. <laughs> it's obviously a lot more. That's an interesting point. That's something I struggled with, too. Like as I was trying to like dig everything up and uncover, there was like some resistance. Yeah. I would get some responses like that, too. Why do you want to know? Or I don't know. Or uh, I forgot. Or go ask you, Tia. They know more. I don't. Yeah, like, yep, yep. Like this resistance, like they, I don't know. Well, what's that about? We don't talk about Bruno. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We don't want to talk about the Azores. That's, that's the new song for us. I can get my dad going. Then my mom will stop telling the story. And if she says it wrong, she'll say it wrong sometimes purposely, I feel like. And he was like, that was, that's not how it went. And then he'll go on and on and on. So it's like, oh, so that's all it takes. Like someone to tell the story, but wrong. And you'll fix it. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's I'm like, that's the only way I'll get you to talk. <laughs> He's like, your mom's messing it up. That's not how it went. And it's like, and he'll go on. But there's so much hesitation, especially with my dad anyway. My mom will talk your air off all day about the Azores. Yeah, I found that too. Like with my mom. So my mom was born and raised there. But when I ask her, I get this hesitancy and she doesn't know. And I go, and then my dad, he's like the one Canadian born. Everybody immigrated. And when they, when they reunited in Canada, he was born here. So him being the youngest, he doesn't know anything. Like you ask him, I don't, I don't even know. I wasn't there. Or ask your, ask your aunt. She's the eldest. She saw that, right? Oh, that's funny because my dad is the youngest too out of his 10. So maybe it has something to do with being the youngest. We went through our phase of not giving a sh to, you know, absorb everything around us while we were growing up. Like my dad immigrated here when he was 16. So he also probably wasn't paying attention to a lot of that stuff while he was out there. It's that generation beyond the parents that you really have to question. And luckily, I still have two living grandmothers now that I can still pull information from. But it's tough because once they once they pass away, that information is gone unless there are other people around to tell it. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is the heritage, too. I don't know. Something about like history. They don't really reflect, but like they just sempre France, you know, they move forward. <laughs> they don't linger traumatic events or what, whatever trials and tribulations they had challenged, they don't want to talk about it. That happened already. Forget about it. They don't want to talk about trauma. I made a ton of highlights in your book because it was so many interesting things in there that I wanted to remember. But one of the things that you mentioned in there was about the, the dictatorship with Salazar. And whenever I try to ask my parents, like the reason that they left, you know, why did you guys leave? Why did you immigrate to the U.S.? There's always like, you know, a handful of reasons. But then whenever the dictatorship comes up, there are two specific things that he tells me. And they were both in your book. And I thought that was hysterical. It was the spitting on the ground. <laughs> if you spit on the ground, they'll take you to the dungeons. And the um, smoking only being allowed to use matches and not lighters. And I just thought that was so funny because I'm like, those are the only two things my dad ever says in relation to the dictatorship. Oh, my gosh, your life sounded so awful. <laughs> yeah, what a great motivator to leave. Yeah, I'm leaving the side. I can't spit and light a smoke with a lighter. This is bullshit. I'm out of <laughs> That's funny. I've heard him say those things so many times. And then to see them written in your book, I was like, oh, there it is. Those are the. The exact reasons. Everyone's telling the same story. <laughs> That's awesome, though. If not, like, asking questions and, like, digging, like, on history websites and stuff, 
you're kind of at a loss to find connections with Luso descendants or Portuguese people like of our generation that are in some form or way or another are keeping the Portuguese dialogue open and seeing it evolve. How I found your podcast. Like I'm looking for a Portuguese podcast, something to listen to. And a lot of it's like Portuguese language podcast. Yeah. A lot of it's Brazilian too. You're like, what the hell is this? Like, where's the Portugal? Portugal? <laughs> right. And there's far and few between out there. But like, as far as like a Portuguese culture, blog, podcast, websites, like there aren't many. And that's how I stumbled on you guys. It's like, oh, this is cool. It's a Portuguese culture podcast. And then when I listen to it, you guys are having the conversations that you you can't necessarily have with the elders. But as you grow up, you know, it is like, you know, your social network splits up and, you know, you, you meet different people. Not everybody's Portuguese in your inner circle. Right. But to have that connection and listen to your podcast or listen to something that resonates with you, that makes sense. I heard that before. Oh, that hits home. Like, that's a good feeling. Right. So that was kind of my inspiration too. writing the book. I want something that a Luso descendant can read and say, wow, like this makes total sense to me. I love that. And I think part of what you just said about our podcast was us bringing the voice to our millennial generation and kind of being the people that had to grow up with all this culture and heritage, but also, again, trying to make it in a different world. Your friends are out playing hockey or watching hockey and you're having to go to the and <laughs> that's a very specific way that we all were brought up where like our parents generation doesn't have that experience their experience was a little bit different you know there are websites or blogs out there that are about people of portuguese descent but they do it from a very like you know historically accurate culture on a pedestal perspective and they're not doing it from the real life lived experience that we have as this generation growing up with these Portuguese parents. So it's it's very specific. And it's one of those things where like, if you're from this generation and you grew up Portuguese, there's not much that we're going to say that isn't going to hit for you. And and it hits hard because like you said, like certain, like you go to like a, a fashta run by a club or the full court, like it's very traditional and it does hold that heritage on a pedestal. So it's very clean, but a format like this, for millennials and the next generation to like, hold on, wait, the question things like, why do we do this? Wait, where did this come from? You know what I mean? And dissect things like it hits even harder. Then <laughs> and do, and do we still want to do this? <laughs> <laughs> Is this one that we're going to keep or are we going to let this one die with us? You know? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Can we let, can we shave this off of it? Like me questioning when I'm like seven years old, walking down a parade. I remember they dressed me up like Saint Saint Jazat that year, and I was wearing like a toga. <laughs> and I'm just questioning, like, why the hell am I doing this? This is embarrassing. <laughs> they can't just have one procession; has to be like twenty in one season. Like, just one procession doesn't suffice for it. <laughs> My mom's like, you can't. Like, you need every like every village needs to have its procession. And then over here, it's like every church has to have their procession. And it's like, no, but like we can't just make one big Portuguese procession and leave it at that. It has to be one every Sunday and we have to walk in all of them. Yeah. And pray the rosary like six times over. And- yeah. Go, go into random people's houses and sit in there while everyone's praying the rosary. 
I mean, our friends, you know, our non-Portuguese friends were certainly not doing anything of the sort. No. And you couldn't even our explain that to them. Our non-Portuguese friends are out there like playing sports or like doing fun. Act- I can't even name you a fun activity. <laughs> I had no extracurriculars. Like my extracurriculars were all church Catholic related. Did your parents pressure you to like get involved with the church, altar service or youth groups or anything like that? Or like the folklore, that's a popular one. Or they make you do, you know, join the band or something like that. They didn't force it, but like we had to tag along. I had cousins who were in the folklore. I had uncles, cousins, family members that were all part of youth group. But I never had to do that because I just I never fully bought in to that kind of stuff. They would send me on like the retreats. You know how you'd have to go yeah, on a retreat, the retreats every once in a while, mm-hmm. and I'd go on those, and I'd come back, and I'm like, oh, it's just really not my cup of tea. I couldn't, I yeah. just couldn't get into it. I was there too, trust me. So, but looking back on it now, like I, I, I really do appreciate it. That sense of culture and that structure we had growing up, right? But in the moment, what would you rather be doing on the weekend? Anything but that. Like honestly. Right. <laughs> And now, because I live, I'm two hours removed from it now, so there's nothing locally in my area that's Portuguese at all. And I want nothing more than to go to a fashta right now. Like, that's like... (laughs) I'm still at, like, no, I want to stay away from the fashta. (laughs) Let's let's go into... We had a couple topics we wanted to talk about today. And, look, one of them here is about traveling back to the Azores. I am fresh off of an Azores trip. I, I I won't get too far into it, but there were two things that fascinated me the most on my trip. One was just imagining some parallel universe where my family did not leave and then what my life would have been like had I been born there and grew up there. And it's just fascinating to see to go out there and you have the you know the brother who stayed with his family and then the brother who left with his family and they're just kind of two separate parallel paths so that was one piece of it and the second thing was just the extreme topography of the island that just fascinated me i have obviously seen pictures i had been out there before 20 years ago but going out there and just taking in literally just the highs and the lows of that island was just I couldn't fathom how people used to do what they did on that island without modern amenities. Like I think Devin, in your book, you had a a part where your vo, I believe, walked from like Fayal de Tara all the way to Ponta Delgada. It was like a 14 hour walk. <laughs> like I was like, no, I couldn't yeah. I was struggling to do that by car. <laughs> yeah. And then like when you really look at that, like it makes sense why maybe in some aspects incest is part of the culture it wasn't easy to travel from one end of the island to the other you don't have a super highway like today now you hop in your honda whatever you go from one end to the other half an hour no problem you do the you do the island in a day right yeah but back then it's like to go from freguesia to freguesia it's like it's a it's a voyage right Either you're on foot or you're using like a donkey or so. Who knows? But it wasn't as easy. So then when you really look at that, like it makes sense why, you know, like my grandfather's side, he lived in Ginech and his family lived in Ginech for centuries and they never left. And it makes total sense. Like it's not easy to go to the main city. You're stationed there. That's where you live. That's home. And your options are uh, 
your prima, your prima, or <laughs> with the crooked eye down the street. <laughs> like, so when you break that down, it's like, yeah, like, wow, okay, that makes sense. But now that when we talk about it, like, it's <laughs> it's gross. Like, right, it's a little, right. Like, you can't that. Like, what are you talking about, right? I know. Like, but, that was always the thing. Like, whenever you would find out that as a kid that like, oh, so-and-so's parents or cousins, it would be like this big thing. And you're like, there wasn't many options back then. <laughs> I was just out there. I'm like, I would have never left the village. Like, I would have never trekked to another village to go find a mate. Like, <laughs> crazy. Yeah, and to think like what you touched on, like the parallel universe. If your family stayed on the island, how things would have panned out? Like, I don't, I don't know, man. That's that's an interesting thought. I guess let let me answer your question with another question. Like, when you go back. How does your family look at you as like a Portuguese American going back? Are you held in a higher light or like, is that still the pie in the sky for, for Islanders over there? Or are they, are they happy with how life is on the island? They don't seem like they're like, they're people who have stayed all this time. So it's, it's kind of like they have either no desire or aren't able to leave for whatever reason. So I don't think they're still, you know, hoping, wishing, wanting to leave that place for something better. They kind of just, this is their life. This is what they're used to. It's day in and day out. They just, it it doesn't seem like they aspire to leave or anything like that. They welcome us with open arms, even though, I mean, I hadn't been there in 20 years. My parents go every year, but it's like once a year for, you know, two weeks. And they still maintain really good contact. It's a lot easier now with all of the social media and stuff because a lot of those people, they're on Facebook now and they can see pictures. And so you don't lose touch as much as you would have in past times. But I don't know. I've always thought that, though. I've always wondered, like, what do they like? Do they think like, oh, look at these freaking Americans coming running our town over here for <laughs> for two weeks. Oh, we got to put up with this. Oh, like, I don't know. I don't know. They seem to welcome us with open arms or at least welcome the kind of the buzz in the in the Frexia. I feel like I remember when I went, my cousins would always introduce me to other like people out there that this is my cousin, Ke- oh, my prima Kelly, and I do America. It was always you have to let them know that you are from America. <laughs> I, I find just in general, they're very welcoming. And what fascinates me is the, the pace of life they have there. I think they're happy to have visitors. They take a lot of pride. Like when I go, my TU has a full-time job. My aunt has a lavanderia. They have a business. Like this guy is busy. Okay. And he still finds the time. He works overnights and he still like wanted to take us out. Wouldn't let us rent a car. He's like, no, no, I'm going to take you tomorrow. I'm like, T, no. You work all night. Don't you need to go home, sleep, you know, start to get ready for your... No, he's like, sleep. No, I'll sleep when I'm, when I'm dead. And he spent the whole day with us. Went home, took like a two-hour power nap, and went back, went to work again. I was, man, this guy's a machine. But they're not inundated with timelines there. In Canada, America, like, we have work to get to, breaks are scheduled, you got to go catch this train, and even when you come home from work, it's like, well, okay, I got to start getting ready for work tomorrow. Okay, make my dinner. Make. They don't live like that. They don't. No. Ever gas when I go? Like, don't you people? Aren't you worried about tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was in bed one night of the week that I was there, 
we're tired. Like we're getting up at the crack of dawn and we are on the go all day long. So by the time we get back after hiking and eating and whatever, driving all day, we want to go to sleep. So it might have been 9, 30, 10 o'clock. I was up in bed already under the covers, like covers, covers <laughs> to chin. Covers to chin. All of a sudden I hear all this commotion downstairs and it was one of our cousins. My dad's cousins had come over and I'm like, oh, she's going to want to see me. I know she's going to want to see me because I haven't seen her yet. So I need to go downstairs. And so I got myself out of bed. I went downstairs and we sat around the table and we talked. She was there for hours and she's like, oh, I still have to do the dishes when I get home. And I'm like, what time are you doing the dishes? <laughs> like, I don't understand. Like, this is like midnight dishes. I don't know. But it was like no sense of urgency. Yeah. Like places to be or anything. It was just, nope, you're here. I'm going to come spend this time with you. I don't care that it's 10 PM. I don't care that you were already in bed. <laughs> Get your ass up. <laughs> oh, it's island life. If there's one thing that would be different if you were raised there or any of us, it would be that different pace in life. And honestly, like that really inspires me. I vision myself retiring early, going to the island, just living a simple life because I'm a little jealous of that. Mm. Like, I want to be like mm-hmm. that. I don't be worried about everything, bills and trains. I just want to be happy with what I have. My last time there was two, three years ago. And we're in Punta Delgada. We're there near, uh, near the waterfront. I'm at a cafe. I pay for my coffee for my group. And then he gives me my change. I slide the change over back on the, on the, the, the bar. And he says, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> I say, that's, that's a tip for you. It's a grajeta. Like, you know, I appreciate your service. And he goes to me, no, no, no. I don't want that. <laughs> you take it back. And he would not take the tip from me. <laughs> I'm like, I was like a little insulted. I was what the hell? That's kind of like, what's this guy's deal? Everybody knows tipping, right? Like, yeah, they don't tip. Yeah. So my uncle, but he's like, no, no, no. You don't tip here. Nobody wants what isn't theirs here. That's why he gave it back to you. And like that, like that stuck with me. Wow. I know. What is that? We don't have that here. Oh, oh my God. Let's not even get started on what tipping culture has become. It's gotten way out of hand. <laughs> oh, there, there must be tips in Toronto here. They're like 30% or something for the lost tips over COVID. They're trying to make up for the tips. But in, in Azores, they don't give a shit about tips. No. Listen, take your euro and 20 cents. Like we don't want it. We're so used to tipping, so that's just like second nature to us. But then also everything is so cheap that it's even more necessary to tip. So, you know, we're going into the cafe every morning in the village and getting two espressos and the guy's like, you know, a dollar 20. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Crazy. It was wild. How cheap everything was, was insane. We fed like six people for breakfast with coffees and orange juice and chocolate milk breakfast sandwiches with ham and cheese and egg on a, a boule de lèvre. The woman rang us all up and it was 10 euro and 50 cents. And I was like, there's six of wow. us. Did you get all of this? Did you, get, <laughs> did you get this all, all the breakfast sandwiches, all the coffees, all the milks? Like, she's like, yep, 10, 10, 50. I'm like, what? Ew, so, uh, so you want a tip because you're like, this feels like robbery. And the service you get, too, is unmatched. They actually care. They check in with you. Like, they give you attention. Like, the pace of life there is the thing that strikes me the most. And I say to myself, I want that. How do I, how do I get that? You know? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of ironic that 
our families had left for a better life to come here. And then here I am yearning for like, what's over there? I want to go back. (laughs) I say that to my parents all the time. I'm like, why did you leave this? You know, you go back there now. And of course, we're vacationing there. So we're like, this is fantastic. Why would you ever leave? And of course, they had their reasons at the time for leaving. And the state of affairs there is different now than it was back then. And they've made this better life for themselves so that they could go back and live comfortably there if they were to go back now. But you had to come here in order to get the benefit of going back and living that life of luxury where where you're thinking everything's cheap. And it's because if you just live there and you're getting their wages, it's not cheap, you know? It's definitely romanticized from a vacation viewpoint. But honestly, I've been on other vacations. I've met people that would go to resorts or certain places of the world and they go back repeatedly. And I always question, like, why would you go back to the same spot? Don't you want to see other places of the world? But it wasn't until I went to Portugal that I understood that feeling. And it's that place that makes that's your home away from home where you feel connected and you want to go back. Right. And it wasn't until Portugal that I felt that. It feels like home. Like I I was joking with Kelly and one of our other friends that I have literally no sense of fear of any of these people. Just they just all feel like they're related to me or they all feel like family. Like I'm like, nobody could do any wrong. My so my dad drove a stick while he was out there and he was trying to get out of a really difficult parking situation where he was on a really steep incline. It was parallel parked. Like he was trying to get out of that with a with a stick shift. And the car just wasn't, I guess, I don't know, the clutch or the gears weren't grabbing. I don't know anything about driving a stick, but he couldn't get it to go. So some guy on the side of the road was like, do you want me to try? And he was like, okay. So my dad just lets this stranger get in the driver's seat of the car that has my daughter in the back and start <laughs> start trying to like he had to drive out of the parking spot to to get the car to go so my dad's telling me the story after the fact and i'm like wait 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 wait, wait. back up back up back up so you you let a stranger go in my car just to take off and abduct my daughter <laughs> like what were you no, thinking but that's not even a thought on the island not worried so. at all no nope. i mean where are you gonna go really but <laughs> right your dad probably was related to him Anyways, <laughs> the story actually gets worse. My dad was trying to justify it, and he's like, he looked like he was a mechanic. He was helping someone else out with their car, try- trying to unlock it. For- <laughs> trying to unlock it. Trying to unlock it for them with like a wire down the window. I'm like, he was trying to steal a car, and you <laughs> let him. You let him drive with my daughter in the seat. I'm like, all the red flags were there, Dad. Like, I'm sorry, but if this one, if this went a different way, this is on you. Put that scenario in America or Canada. Hell no. Hell no. <laughs> I just came back from Florida yesterday, and I was with two other friends, and we took an Uber driver back from. We had gone out to dinner, and the Uber driver took us back to our, our hotel. And she was like, oh, she was just chatting with us, you know, asking where we were from and all that. And she just warned us not to go to Miami in Florida because it's so dangerous that during even during the day that we could get shot in the face. Those are her exact words, shot in the face. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I don't think that's the case. And so we were like, all screwed up from that the whole entire time we were in Florida. We didn't go to Miami, and I don't think that is the case. 
I guess you can get you can get shot anywhere, but I don't think that was the actual case. But me and her were messed up from that one comment from that Uber driver. I'm like, lady, you just like ruined our trip for us. <laughs> in Portugal, though, like I would have gone to anybody's house there. I would have like I would have slept at, with the door open at like, any time at any time. Yeah. I mean, they let strangers in their houses like all the time. The the, the Romeos or even else like off season, the Romeos like somebody knocks on your door. Yeah, come in. We're making soup. Come on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you hungry? There, play with my kids. <laughs> It was a great time. I can't wait to go back. A week was definitely was not enough. You haven't gone in so long. So I'm sure you had a lot of like reuniting with family members and they want to see you. So the whole thing, right? You got to do the rounds, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. You can't really go unnoticed or show up and like stay under the radar when you go and visit those villages. But it's local news. Like as soon as you get there, mm-hmm. like broken telephone down the street. <laughs> My daughter has bright platinum blonde hair and blue eyes. And so you can imagine she stuck out like a sore thumb in this village. The talk of the town was like, who does this little Lurinha belong to? Like, <laughs> <laughs> we saw a Lurinha on the playground. Where is she from? Oh, I was like, that's my Lurinha. And my husband is a redhead. So he, <laughs> he stuck out <laughs> even more. He wasn't expecting the language barrier i don't know why he doesn't speak portuguese and he was just assuming that he'd be able to get around and he would like go up you know leading the way at a restaurant and he'd get to the hostess and they they would say two words to him and he'd just be like i don't know <laughs> and he would just turn around and be like i need you can you come help <laughs> oh. yeah so he really had no clue i'm like I don't know why they would try talking to him in Portuguese. Like there was zero percent chance that he was going to respond. But don't they speak English? It's like like they fluently speak. At least the kids do, or they comprehend some form of English. They'll often start in Portuguese, and then only if you tell them that you know do you speak English or something, then they'll start talking in English to you. But I tried to talk to everybody in Portuguese the entire time I was there. I was a little rusty. Yeah, I do the same when I go. Like, I throw myself in. Like, I want to be Portuguese. I take pleasure in speaking with strangers and, like, trying to connect. And I get by. They look at me a little funny. (laughs) It's a concoction of, like, Azorian Portuguese with my Canadian accent. And then at the time, like, I was using an app to brush up on my Portuguese. But sure enough, it's only Brazilian Portuguese. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My accent with some of the words that I learned was like, they looked at me like really strange. I remember going to Portal and like the guy understood me at the restaurant and I went with my cousin and we got by, we had a dialogue, but then he, he goes to the side of my cousin. He's like, where's your cousin from? Where, 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 what's his accent? <laughs> I can't tell. We speak Portuguese pretty well, I think, but because from where we, where we live, I feel like it's like kind of broken. We call it broken Portuguese. I don't know how you guys. So I was interested to hear how your Portuguese is being Canadian. We have all these English words embedded that have <laughs> snuck into the language. Yeah, we have that too. It's kind of evolved, so it's definitely broken Portuguese up here too, uh, with Canadianisms. Oh, parking. <laughs> they throw like a Portuguese accent on it, and then. Yes. And like our parents kind of, I think they're forgetting a bit of it, right? 
but my Portuguese, I get by. I, you know, I think I sound like a caveman when I speak Portuguese, but sometimes, yeah. <laughs> but the hardest part for me is just getting over that. I guess the, you know, the vergunha, that embarrassment. Somebody corrects you, and it just sort of turns you off. But like I always say, it, it's a taste of our own medicine because for years I would poke fun at mom. Like, oh, you don't say it like that. It's the window, mom. What do you mean, right? right? All those years of me like running away from Portuguese, and now I'm trying. It's like a taste of my own medicine, mm-hmm. but it's still like they're not making fun. It's loving. They're just trying to correct you. But I need to get over my own like vulnerability, you know. The English words that have snuck in have become so normalized that I can barely pick out which ones are the real words versus which ones are the like made up words like ishtua. Oh my god, yeah. Sweda, sweda, blanqueta, like <laughs> maqueta, <laughs> bashqueta. Go <laughs> 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 <Recording> the maqueta. <laughs> There's so many of them that we've used that I'm like, oh, is that not? <laughs> That's not the real word for it. <laughs> Usino. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's like the best one because it's like you're just using, you're just adding like an O <laughs> to the front of the word snow. <laughs> it's Portuguese now. Did you unknowingly slip some of those words in in your trip to Portugal? Guaranteed. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I think I was on the airplane and I'm asking for a blanqueta and I'm like, I don't even know what's the what's the real word. Oh yeah. Sh- That's so funny. And a lot of times I have to use a more roundabout way to get to what I want. So I can get there, but it's not pretty. Instead of like the name for the thing, it's a kuzik blah blah blah. <laughs> yeah, I have that too. I would equate my comprehension of Portuguese to like probably like not even a second grader in Portugal, like maybe like a first grade or something. Right. Because there were kids that were like speaking way better. Obviously, it's their primary language. But I remember questioning my skills speaking Portuguese. I was like, man, this little like this little eight year old's like beating the shit out of me like in Portuguese. Oh my God. <laughs> I got to get better. <laughs> it's sad, too, because we went through so many years of it in school where we were reading and writing. And we got to a point where we were pretty fluent. fluent yeah. So you at your school is that yeah so we had portuguese classes in school like that was the language that we chose to take where other kids took spanish or french or something in my high school we treated french like that here at least like my circle french is part of the curriculum from grade one to nine ask me to put a sentence together french i don't know french but i could like read it i could like kind of make it out (laughs) speaking it forget about it like it's not happening but Portuguese, my mom did put me in Portuguese classes for like two years, like on weekends. Mm. She'd go do the shopping, go to Dundas, like West Toronto, go to Portugal Village, do her errands. And I'd be in class and they give us homework and everything. But I mean, I guess some of that probably stuck with me, but I lost it over time. I think subconsciously, it's still there. I just got to reactivate it. But you got to do the work, right? You got to practice. That's exactly that. If you, you don't use it, you lose it. And so when I moved away, I moved away maybe... 12 years ago now from the area where all my family lives. I'm only about two hours away, but it was enough of a separation where I'm no longer using Portuguese to speak to my family on a regular basis. 
you just start to get really rusty when you don't use it. And then the recall takes so much longer when you're trying to speak. And I go back and I'm talking to my grandmothers and I'm like, oh my God, I am like, I know the words are there, but they are just not coming out. Like, it's just brutal. So what does that say about me? I speak it every day (laughs) to my parents still, and it's still rusty. (laughs) So I don't know. I don't think it matters if you're around it or not, because I'm around it all day. And it's still broken. Mm, that's interesting. Because even among your family, like words like blanket, like it's all. <laughs> <laughs> when we use those type of words, like my parents are not one to be like, hey, no, like you're, you're saying it wrong. It, this is how you have to say it. Like if I'm asking my mom for a blanket or, you know, when I was a kid, I would say blancota, like, mom, can I have a blancota? She would just go get me a blanket. She wouldn't tell me like, I'll get you a blanket if you say it right. Like that's what they should have done. <laughs> but they didn't for me it's like my 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 family will ask me a question in portuguese their dialogue's in portuguese i respond in english we get each other and you know we get by that's it's kind of funny my dad speaks very broken english but even till this day he'll ask me how like if he sees like a certain animal on the tv like i don't know he'll be like how do you say that in english and he'll like just keep repeating it until he knows how to say it and i'm like that's crazy. Like at 67 years old, you still want to learn. You're still trying to learn English every day. Like he always wants to know, like, he'll be like, oh, do you guys have this kind of animal? Like, what's the name of this animal? Whatever. Let's say, because I think it was it a squirrel. I don't think they have like squirrels in Azores. Oh, they don't. Yeah, they I- don't. Canada, he was like flabbergasted seeing squirrels. Who's <laughs> squirrels? My mom's scared of squirrels. And I'm like, what do you, you guys didn't have that out there? And so like my dad's like, how do you say that? And I would be like, oh, just squirrel. But he had a hard time saying squirrel. So the one thing that just popped into my mind uh, while I was out there, you know how the symbolism for the bathroom is WC? Yeah. Which I guess stands for like wash closet or something. But it's it's like based <laughs> based on an English set of words and it involves a W, which I'm pretty sure is not in the Portuguese alphabet. So. Yeah, I never made that connection, eh? They don't have W's in the alphabet. So where'd that come from? <laughs> I'm like, why are, why are we, these poor Portuguese people, they don't even have a W in their alphabet and all their bathrooms say WC. This is for like wash closet. And I'm like, why? And their stop signs, their stop signs say stop. Why don't they say pada? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't understand. So I think when I was out there, my cousins was always called like the bathroom, like cause it's boy, right? Yeah. But here I'll be like, Keji boy. They did say that. And I started saying cause it's boring while I was out there because that's what how they were saying it to me. How do you say it, Devin? I say quark buying. Yeah, but it's cause. And yeah, I, I guess like what that originates from like the outhouses they have. Uh, outhouse, yeah. So it'd be like a whole separate. It was an actual like house for them. So they call it cause and here. We have a room. Ah, I never, I never made that yeah. association. Yeah. <laughs> but I think in Brazil, it's like something totally. I think they do banheiro or something uh, like that. Yeah, something like that. Yep. So, how do we keep the culture alive? How does our generation keep it alive? How do we continue some of these traditions? Which ones do we want to continue? Which ones do we not want to continue? Because I feel like some of them may die with us and our generation. The ultimate fate of losing the heritage here at least in like the diaspora has been a fear for decades 
Because at least like in Toronto, that was a fear in like the 70s, 80s. Mm. What's going to happen? It's good with the clubs, to the folklore as well. Who's going to step up? Who's going to take over? O meu Devin está em casa playing video games. Não importa, quer ser português. What's going on? I think that's been something that, that the, the community has faced for a while now. But I think we are getting to like that fork in the road where the break point, where not everybody's marrying Portuguese. There's less of Portuguese uh, expats coming over. And like you said, like there's pieces of the culture that this generation, like we don't necessarily agree with, you know, like the really religious stuff, the pilgrimages. What are we going to shake off? And what's going to exist in the future, right? But I think we're prompted to step up in some way or another and continue this. But I think what we're doing here is a form of keeping that alive. And I think it's obviously going to evolve. Who knows if it's still like brick and mortar even? Like that's a thought I had like prepping for the podcast today, you know? Like we have so many clubs here in Toronto. There's Club de Madeira. Club de Zasur, Casa de Zasur, Club de Alantes, there's so many, plus folklore and radio and television, but who's going to step up and take the reins? The stuff is definitely going to fall off the wayside, but who knows in a future state if it's even brick and mortar anymore, or if it's going to be like digital communities like this, right? That's a good point. It definitely needs to evolve, but like when I look for like guys my age or, or you know portuguese youth my age millennials what are we doing what's everyone doing again let's go play cards let's watch soccer what, what, what's happening mm-hmm. it, i can't find it honestly it's not there so you know um how do we keep it alive i guess trying like like you uh melissa like going back to the fastage and like feeling that connection but who knows like in a decade or two if if those fashions are even there anymore. Well, that's the thing. We're going to have to be hosting the fashions. And I don't know if we're all prepped to do that. <laughs> if we're prepped or, you know, if the format the fashions in right now is necessarily what we vision, what that looks like in the future. Yeah, you know I'm not I mean? I'm not slaughtering the cow or the pig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll get up to make the mouth sausage. That's about it. <laughs> I do. I do want to unroll some billets. <laughs> I want to go to the bazaar. I did that this past weekend at the Madeira Park. They had that. The, the bazaar is always a, a hit. Right? Oh yeah. Little little bits like that. What what does it what does it evolve into? What does the future look like? And I think those that are interested and keen on this and actually are inspired to like want to do something, we we got to start linking up. Like, we got to start talking because if it's not us, I joke around. I say the geezers, they're the ones in control. They dictate what <laughs> needs to be traditional. But, like, if we don't step up and start sprinkling our influence in it and start connecting, like, this is going to fall off the wayside because nobody wants to continue in its current format what it looks oh, like. Oh, you know exactly. I mean? Exactly. Because there are there's parts of it that are problematic or that we just don't believe in and we just can't. Yeah. You know, it has a nostalgic component to it at this point, or, you know, it's tied to your childhood. And so you have it from that traditional sense. But it's like, do you actually believe in what you're doing? And if you don't, it's what's the point? You know, I hate to say it, but I always say it's like going to end with our parents, like their generation. It feels like it's times, right? Right. Because I'm like, because when you mentioned the whole like clubs and stuff, my dad is a member of a sports club. And it's all Portuguese men, man. 
older yeah yep my brother has no desire of joining the club like he my brother has no desire to watch soccer with my dad like i occasionally watch soccer with my father what's gonna happen like when no one wants to join that like that club anymore like will it just close (laughs) the geezers they don't want to adopt to even attract the youth right if you propose a new idea to them or maybe let's do it this way maybe we'll get more Mm -hmm. they don't want to Well, that's not right. It's no sect. No, no, not like that. No. And I think, you know, between generations, we got to meet somewhere in the middle here too. Like, let's keep some of those important traditional things, but we got to attract some of the youth. And Mm -hmm. how are we going to do that? And how are we going to entice them to like, want to go to the club and want to speak English? Because like, what I find you go to the clubs, like, it's just resistant old men and they're stuck in their ways and they don't, at least when I was younger, like maybe that's the feeling I didn't like as a kid was being told I'm wrong or what I think isn't the right way and n- no dialogue to like educate or maybe try and meet in the middle. Like, let's try and understand each other. Mm-hmm. You know? It's like, no, this is the way this is black. There's no shade of gray. This is what it is. No, right. you're wrong. you know, it's like, okay, then I don't want to. Right. Go right. <laughs> oh my God. Exactly. You, you know? just, you- you just nail my father to the tea. <laughs> that is him. <laughs> there are parts of the culture that are great, like are fantastic. Just oh, absolutely, kind of just core pieces. Not even like all the pomp and circumstance of all the you know fascists and stuff like that, but just who they are at their core. And it's you know they're they're minimalists and they don't want to waste and they live off the land and they grow their own food and they have this cuisine that's amazing and it's just there were really cool things about the culture and a lot of it when you think about why it's like that it's kind of like born out of poverty which is pretty sad but it's just inherent to their nature like they're not going to waste anything they're going to find an innovative use for everything they're going to recycle everything and that those are really good qualities those are things we should keep up and oh yeah we've gone off the deep end of being materialistic and consumers and we need to go back to basics, back to how our parents' generation was. And I think that's how, you know, we can help honor them in that way. That's that's a really interesting point, actually. Maybe the trajectory of like society as a whole right now, like we are trying to go back to like that minimalistic approach and self-sufficiency and, you know, mi- like limiting waste. So m- maybe m- maybe you're onto something there. Maybe that's part of the trajectory, like how we sort of circle back, you know, and keep those pieces of ourselves and still aligning with like the way things are going today. Yeah. You know? Well, uh, we can make a patron saint for it. We're all good. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I wouldn't be surprised if we already have one now. <laughs> we have patron saints of everything. <laughs> when I found out there was a patron saint of Agniaj, I was, that was yeah. it for me. I was like, Oh, it was game over. <laughs> I'm like, Oh my God. I kind of touched it on my book. My grandmother being like a skittish girl, inherently, like maybe that's a quality from us being on the island, like the uncertainty of like what tomorrow holds and the poverty, just like life as it was. I think maybe that's generational because I find myself sometimes like having agonias, feeling, I don't even know why I'm nervous, but what's going on? Like I'm having like a cold sweat and I can't explain it sometimes, but maybe, I don't know, maybe it's in our blood. 
I know. I've I've thought that. I'm like, is this shit genetic? Because I feel like we all <laughs> we all have it. And it's obviously the old case of like nature versus nurture. And is it just because we grew up hearing this all day long? Or is it because it's truly in our blood that, you know, and I would think it could be, you know, they had generations and generations of people that just lived with this intense fear. Doomsday fear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the island's gonna sink. And I think that's where that trait of like maybe running away from trauma and not talking, just bearing it. Yeah. Bearing it. Don't talk about it. That's, you know, at least for the men standpoint, like we don't, like we don't talk about that. There, there wasn't mental health when I was in high school. Mom, I feel weird. Oh, shut up. What do you mean? You feel weird. Just <laughs> here, have a glass of milk. Be quiet, you know, but now like talking about it feels good and we need that. But inherently, like that wasn't part of our culture. I had this one uncle that I was actually like surprised by. He was married for a long time. His wife left left him. It was a huge debacle. We were actually in Portugal when we found out his wife was leaving him. <laughs> my uncle was like really devastated, obviously, over it. He was crying, like pretty much he was crying to my father. And it's like not something you think, of, you know, old Portuguese men crying, right? But my uncle was like crying about the fact that his wife just left him for another man. And my dad just looks at him like, what are you crying for? <laughs> and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, you'll you'll get over it. Like, you know, you'll move on. Like that that was like my father's advice. And I was like, granted, this is like a long time ago, but I was like, that is horrible advice. Oh my God. <laughs> like you can't just like, you're not gonna just you can't just bury that down. Like, yeah, like let the man cry about it. They don't it. talk about shit. Look, I respect it. Yeah, nothing. Very stoic, hard nose, like, move on. Dashala, Dashala. Oh my God, I feel like that's what he said. <laughs> so this is a good segue. We're going to kick off our, it's called mental health segment. So my it's called mental health way of coping is talking to my friends. I have close friends that I will reach out to when I am anxious. And Melissa is one of them. She's listened to a lot of crazy things that I would reach out to her about. And I have a few other ones, but Melissa, I will just use Melissa as an example, but she's pretty good at kind of calming me down if I'm in like a moment this can't happen because of this and this and this. And she'll yell at me to kind of be like, don't Google when you're anxious because Google's going to tell you that you have 10 types of cancers. <laughs> so that's just my simple little ones, just kind of reaching out and talking to your friends. My one follow-up question is, are you suggesting that people get their own friends or are they going to use me? <laughs> <laughs> they can reach out to you. <laughs> you can DM us on Instagram. <laughs> you, do, you have a good way of like, logically thinking of things of being like okay this can't happen because you can't have rabies because the dog didn't bite you kelly <laughs> exactly and like i'll be on that cliff and you're right there just like pulling you behind you like come on you like get out get down this cliff so yeah you're good at it <laughs> i'll be taking appointments in the dms <laughs> so i'll do my next one tip for improving mental health was to just start setting firm boundaries for myself and stop doing things that I don't want to do out of some perceived obligation, which the Portuguese are very well known for their guilt trips. 
you can start to feel like, oh, I need to go to this. I need to go to that. Somebody invited me to a baby shower and a birthday party and all these things. You start just blindly going to all of them. And COVID was a nice reset button. Everything stopped and you just got to like reevaluate your life without all those things in it. And then when things started kicking back up, I was like, listen, I don't need to make it to every single one of these events. I can appreciate people from afar or I can make it to every other event or something to that effect. But I don't need to go to every single thing every single weekend, especially for me. I live two hours away from all of my friends and family. So it's not just like a little stop by on the the weekend for an hour. It's like everything's a full weekend event. So I just started kind of backing off some of those things and just being like, what do I want to do? Do I want to attend this event? No, I really don't want to attend this. And I'm not going to let anybody make me feel guilty about it. And I'm going to just do what I want to do to find joy in my own life. And it sounds pretty selfish. But at the end of the day, if it's giving you peace of mind and mental health, that's paramount. So that's a really good one. Yeah, like you touched on like the Portuguese guilt trips. Like for me, it's yeah, you feel pressure cultural pressures of like ways you should behave or things you should attend. But for me, it's just, I I, I like to take a moment and pause and give myself that time to like, just reset, you know, just like, like, like a quick little meditation, right? I'm a writer, and I'm a deep thinker, naturally, and I question things, I'm very curious. And I have a tendency to internalize things a lot. And I'll really like replay things in my mind. And it might be like an offshoot comment. Why did they say this? Why Why did they say it like this? Oh, Wait, yeah. You know, <laughs> and I go down, I spiral sometimes, mm-hmm. right? But I need to like take that moment to be like, okay, hold on. Maybe I'm overthinking this again. I'm spiraling. Like give myself that moment and just check in, like verbalizing it. Like I said, like a lot of times I'll internalize it and all this dialogue's in my head. But when I speak it out loud and I talk to my wife about it or a friend and it's like, okay, you know what? This is all in my head. I'm just really like going out of control. I'm overthinking like crazy right now, right? So I'll give myself that moment just to like check in and maybe just verbalize it out loud. Um, so that's my mental health tip. Like verbalize it, don't internalize it, speak it out loud and go for a walk. He's even got a motto, verbalize it, don't internalize it. <laughs> We're going to put that on a t-shirt. That was a good one. I like that was just off the cuff. That was amazing. Without getting too deep in because this could be a whole separate episode. But that feelings that you just expressed really resonated with me about, you know, the overthinking and the the spiraling of, you know, what people are thinking of you or whatever. And I feel like there's a lot of like perfectionism type qualities there. And like, is that culturally driven? Like, do are we... Do we all have this because of our culture? Do we have this just because of our generation as millennials? I think it's a combination. Growing up, like my mom had a concern of like what the neighbors are going to think. Yes. Oh, my God. Prime example, going to church on Sunday and not everybody was Portuguese, mind you, but a lot were at my church. But I had to go dressed to the ninth. The other Portuguese kids or even like the non-Portuguese kids, they were very casual wear khakis t-shirt maybe a baseball cap okay they take it off inside but they were dressed like they would at school and i was like pressured like no you don't dress like this for church it's no accept <laughs> <Right. that. laughs> don't dress like this for a zuge. <laughs> like that a lot of my overthinking comes from like preconceived conclusions of like what other people are going to think about me right and it's like you got to get over that but 
I don't know. Is that ingrained? Yeah. Like, is that a Portuguese? Uh, yes, absolutely. So it's about that whole judgment aspect. So it took me a while to understand this, that the reason that I thought people were judging me was because I was judging other people. Do you know what I mean? And like that, it, mm-hmm. you, yeah. that oh, yeah. connection is like, okay, if, if you're not judging other people, you're not thinking other people are judging you because it's just not part of your your thought process. But when you judge other people, then you're always worried about what they're thinking of you also because you're like, oh, I know they're talking about me. I know they're you know saying blah, blah, blah. And I feel like that a lot of that was ingrained in us culturally because they're always whispering and talking about whoever. And That hits hard, man. Yeah. Is- <laughs> it's not like a pleasant fact. <laughs> like it's, you know. don't want to admit it. It's not. But it's once I realized that, I was like, oh my gosh. So I need to do two things. I need to A, stop judging other people. And then B, once I do that, I will be able to not care what other people think of me, or I will realize that they're probably not thinking of me at all. You know, they're not judging me. They're not thinking of me. And if they are, that's their problem. You know, let them worry about that, not me. So. That's a big realization. I think a lot of what we're doing here is like breaking free from these shackles. Because like, imagine like a generation ago or two, where you don't really question these aspects of ourselves. And it's just, it's, it's normal. This is who we are. This is how we live. And imagine going on through your life, like you're 60, 70 now, and this is all you've known. And like, I, I think we're doing the work to like changing the future. It starts with this very uncomfortable realization of ourselves. Like, yeah, I'm doing that too. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I need to stop right. that. <laughs> exactly. Here's where I was going to give you, Devin, an opportunity to promote your book. I feel like we've talked about it a bunch throughout the episode. If there's anything more you want to say, you know, tell people where to get it and all that, you can do that now. Let me just say, like, thank you to both of you for having me on as a guest. This is really fun. And I think having these discussions and shining light on these aspects of ourselves is how we keep the culture alive and help it evolve for future generations. So you guys are doing a great job. I'm a fan. I love it. Thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah. So my book, The Portuguese Immigrant Atlantic Heritage Story, I hope that Lusso descendants and people of all backgrounds can read it. And there is a connection you can feel to my grandfather's story. We're all immigrants here in the new world, Turtle Island, you know, America, Canada. Uh, But how we got here is a fascinating story. And I think we should all know exactly what our roots are and where we came from. I I hope you enjoy it. Uh, You can get it on Amazon. It's available ebook and paperback copies. You know, let's keep the culture alive. That's great. We're so excited to have you. This was a a great show. And I'm sure we'll we'll ask to have you on again sometime because this was awesome dialogue. I mean, it's just you can sit here and have a conversation and it's like we've known each other our whole lives because we've lived the same life and it's so cool. Mm -hmm. So it's about that time. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying our podcast, please just give us a review on whatever platform you're using to listen to us. You can also visit our website. It's folkandfad.com. We have transcripts available there of every episode, and you can also send us an email, mail at folkandfad.com, or you can hit us up on Twitter, same handle there, folkandfad. And for Instagram, you can follow us at underscore it's called culture.